Please turn with me in God's holy word to the Old Testament reading from Isaiah 43. As you're turning there, I want to again extend thanks to the session of Pastor Dan for the invite, a wonderful privilege to serve in this congregation. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the fire shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Amen. Amen. Our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of John, and this morning, chapter 9. John chapter 9, our text is verses 1 through 5, but we're going to read on through verse 12. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with that saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Salom, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they all perish. But the word of our God endures forever 
and ever. And this is God's holy word. Bless us with your very presence so that the inscripturated word, which bears testimony to you, the incarnate word, might be heard by all of us. So grant us your blessing, bless your servant, grant him grace and unction, and your people, that they might hear Christ and bless his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The backdrop for our Lord's teaching and healing of the blind man is the Feast of Tabernacles, and particularly the Festival of Lights and the Festival of Water. Both remembrances of what God had done for Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. How he gave them water from the rock. And you remember the rock, scriptures tell us, is Christ Jesus himself. And how he provided the pillar of light so that they might be guided to the promised land. And the Jew, or the Lord Jesus used these festivals then to, to show the Jews that he is the one from whom streams of living water would flow to the church. And our Lord taught us in chapter 9 that he was the one who would satisfy their deepest longing because it would be the spirit of Christ himself entering into their lives and that believing in him, they would know the light of life, our Savior himself. But this morning, I want for us to consider this passage and, and the most profound answer that our Lord Jesus Christ gives to his disciples concerning the blind man. They said to our Savior, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Since we live in a fallen world with so many human tragedies, with suffering all around us and among us, sufferings that we hear each day, is good, it's most profitable for us to understand our Lord's reply to his disciples so that we might know how to live and how to respond and that great, heavenly, sacred task that our Lord gives us as he speaks, as he gives the response to his disciples, that we be willing vessels to display God's glory. That you and I would be willing vessels to display the glory of our great God. As we come to our text, we want to notice first Christ's compassion for the needy. Our Lord Jesus, as we go along in the flow of John's gospel, he leaves the temple precincts. And John records for us this most beautiful scene. There he leaves the temple and he sees this blind man, a man blind from birth. Now we know he just taught the religious leaders in the temple. But they have, by and large, rejected our Lord Jesus Christ. They have forsaken him and his teaching. And so Jesus moves outside the temple. 
And as he moves outside, we find this great contrast. There sat one who, because of his physical infirmity, was prohibited from worshiping in the temple with the people of God. And immediately then we are reminded that Jesus came into the world for the broken, for the lost, for the weak, for those who are not well, for those who are not all put together. He came for those who needed salvation. As Jesus explained earlier, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus will have his kingdom filled with citizens. He has told us that. He has shown us that in parables. And one of those citizens is this poor beggar, this poor, afflicted, blind man. And as Jesus saw him, he didn't just pass by him, but he stopped. This man, in a desperate need for healing, our Lord notices. Jesus sees him, and he caught the attention of our Savior. Now, often when we think of our Lord Jesus and when we speak of his compassion, it's more that we think of the deeds that he does, the healings to those who are ill. But we ought to think even deeper about our Lord, and what the evangelist wants us to see here is actually Jesus' emotional life. That our Lord Jesus felt, because he is God-man, the inner turmoil, the, the emotions of pity towards this man. John is showing us the heart of our Savior, the compassion, the kindness of our Savior, that he is one who takes notice of our needs. He is one who knows our needs, and he considers them. Those who are frail, those who are weak, those who are vulnerable, now, this might not mean too much to some of you, particularly if you're healthy and you're strong and you've got it all together. Everything's going well in your life. But when you're in the midst of woes or turmoil or struggle or difficulty in your life, whether physically or with sin and temptation, perhaps yourself, or over a loved one, a child, a parent, a friend, or perhaps your own health like this man, the blind man, and Jesus saw this blind man, then is most encouraging and comforting to us, isn't it? And the scriptures want us to understand that, that it's those who are needy, those who are in distress, those who are struggling, that it is those that our Lord particularly pays attention to. He considers the needy, and then he takes initiative. He sees, and that invokes compassion from our Lord. 
And this is who our God is. The God who we serve, our God, the God of the old covenant, the God of the new covenant, this is who he is. You remember that moving scene at, at the beginning of Exodus when the Israelites are in bondage. They have been tormented. They are under oppression because of Pharaoh. And at the end of chapter 2 and into 3 and 4 of Exodus, Moses writes that our Lord, the God of heaven, he looked down at the groaning of his people. And then he writes this. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered covenant. With Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. How compassionate, how kind, how loving, that our groaning evokes a compassionate response from our God. And the Psalms are filled with such declarations in our call to worship. Psalm 34, we read in verse 6, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. Psalm 72 he, hear, he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. And you go through the prophets and we have the same record of our God. And so and the prophets speak, not just as the Psalms, they're not... They're not just speaking of the physical ailments and as God sees the travail of his people physically, but spiritually. And so you have the two, physical and spiritual, and often they are bound together, as we'll see here. But if you read Ezekiel 16, you'll see how the Lord so wonderfully sees us in our spiritual need and response. But my dear friends, this is exactly who the Lord is. He hasn't changed. He is the same. He takes notice of those who are in need. And even though our Christ is in heaven, we live by faith and not by sight, our Lord Jesus Christ takes notice. He is just as compassionate and tender and his embrace is as large as if he was or he ever was on the earth. He is our sympathizing high priest, the writer of Hebrews reminds us. Now the evangelist highlights the, the compassion of our Lord Jesus by contrasting him to the attitude of his disciples and their conduct and their question in verse 2. They said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I can only hope that this poor man had hearing problems as well, that he didn't hear this question that the disciples were asking our Savior. 
but it's rather likely that he was in their presence and that he heard it. And if you're a parent this morning, I think you know exactly what I mean. I'm sure you've experiencing, experienced similar embarrassing questions from your four or five or eight-year-old, perhaps in the checkout line. But these aren't children. These are grown-ups. These are the Lord's disciples. They are grown. They are believing men. And yet how insensitive these disciples were. They callously asked such a question of our Lord right in the hearing of this blind man. Now, it's obvious that they had no concern for the poor blind man. They had grown such accustomed to seeing sights like this, blind man, lame man, sick man, all around. And many were at the temple, one that we, we considered last week. And so, they're not even compassionate. It's like the police officer who sees so many domestic abuse cases that he is cows towards them. Well, our Lord Jesus is not callous. They might have been, but our Lord Jesus, his eye was upon this poor man, and he shows compassion. But these disciples, they have a theological question that they want Jesus to answer. It's a dilemma to them. The situation is like being a doctor or in a doctor's office, and the doctor has this intern with him. And... As the doctor is asking you questions, the intern asks a question about your condition. And he asks that question just to further his own knowledge, but he stands aloof of you, the patient. That's what these disciples were doing. They wanted to know what's behind what we might classify today as a congenital medical condition blindness from his birth. And so there's a specific question. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? They only saw two possibilities, two options. The man sinned or his parents sinned. And thus, he was blind. So a question such a question then revealed their hearts, which often questions do, don't they? They reveal our own hearts and our own understanding. And this is the unveiling or revealing of the, the hearts of the disciples. They wanted to understand what had brought about this adversity in this man's life. They believed that there was a one-to-one -one ratio between Adversity and the judgment of God. Sin and punishment for that sin. They thought they were intimately connected. Now, of course, in one sense, they are. On the universal sphere, the scriptures teach us very plainly from the very beginning that there would be no tear, no sadness, no pain, no suffering, if there had not been sin, the sin of our first father, there would be no death. 
without guilt. But when these truths, which are biblical, when they are transferred wholesale to an individual situation, then they make, and they make such a tight connection then between sin and the suffering of an individual, that goes beyond scriptural teaching, which is based on a deeper assumption. The idea that all affliction, all pain, all suffering is divine punishment for all sin. You know, these disciples were not alone in their assumption. Now, Scripture teaches us about those miserable friends of Job. They thought Job was the worst sinner in the land because... He was the worst because he had, he was the most grievously afflicted man in the land. Now, thankfully, the book of Job was written to refute such teaching by showing that Job's suffering had nothing to do with his own sin, the sin on his part. And you know, sometimes we have these sneaking suspicions creep up in our own hearts as well, don't they? When we look at the trials, the difficulties of our friends, our family, our brothers and sisters, and we think to ourselves, there must be something amiss in their lives. There must be some sin that we don't know, but the Lord knows. Or we might, in our self-righteousness, say, my life's so blessed. I don't experience such difficulty. Everything's going well. I must be doing something right, which we wouldn't necessarily say, but we think. I must be doing something right to enjoy such blessing. Now, this is the exact accusation in different ways, put in different ways, that these disciples had. It's the same accusations. They weren't blind. They could see That's the problem. Now, of course, having said all these things, we ought not to dismiss the disciples' question out of hand as if there is no place for self-examination in our lives when sin or when, when difficulties do come in our lives. You know, the Bible's record is full of these things. Look at Eli's death and the death of his sons or the death of Aaron's sons, the death of the little son of David and Bathsheba, or the leprosy of Miriam or King Uzziah. We have many, many examples in Scripture where self-examination is most proper and profitable. And it was God's response to sin. But it's Scripture, it's God himself then, who gives us the response, his response to their sin, and thus also the punishment. But we can't, individually, we can't take that prerogative to ourselves. We're not God. And therefore, we should never rush to conclusion that every affliction is a direct result of God's judgment on sin. 
And our Lord Jesus quickly corrects the disciples' assumption in this situation with a most profound answer. And so our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus' compassion for sinners. But secondly, our Lord's most profound answer. The disciples want to know the cause of the man's blindness. Was it his own sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind? And then Jesus' answer, neither, he says, this man or his, nor his parents sinned. Now, this must have stunned the disciples. You understand that Jesus wasn't saying that the man or, or his parents weren't sinners. That's not what he's saying. Jesus was saying, rather, that the man's blindness was not a direct result of either the sin of the blind man or his parents. Then, the disciples must have thought, well, what's the cause? Why is this man blind and born blind? Now, you notice that Jesus does not give a cause. He doesn't answer that question directly. But Jesus does give them something to think about. He gives them the purpose for this man's blindness. Talk about heavenly wisdom. Redirecting the thoughts of his disciples from man, from this earth, from the tragedies, the sufferings of this earth to heavenly heights, even to the glory of God. Jesus directs his disciples in a very different way. Verse 3, he says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He says it's nothing about this man. It's nothing about his parents. It's all about God and about God's own glory. In his blindness, God is displaying his works, his own glory. He is showing the world his power and his glory by declaring a name for himself. God does, as we all know, all things for his glory. God is God. We read that from Isaiah chapter 43. God does all things for his glory, and he shares his glory with no one else. Think of the Exodus plagues for a moment. Don't you think that God could have wiped out Pharaoh and his mighty hosts and delivered his people Israel with just one plague rather than ten plagues? Of course he could have. So why didn't he? For his own glory. So that he might make his name great in all the earth. So that we might say he wants to keep his name in the press. Not just for generations. But for all time. That all generations might know that he is God. 
And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul's point was in Romans, in chapter 9, when he speaks about Pharaoh. He says, he says, for 17, for this purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's our God. Now what's important to point out here and to notice is that our God doesn't use pre-existing conditions and then says to himself, how can I use these things for my glory? Not at all. He's sovereign over all things. He makes all things, the evil and the good. You remember how the prophets are so helpful on this, that they use, or they speaking of God, talk of God, as the one who brings peace and causes calamity. He's God. He's sovereign. The ruler over all things, the almighty. And he uses all things for his own glory. He doesn't just pick up the pieces that have fallen. No, he has ordained all things from eternity for his glory. Moses taught us that. It's so beautiful. When Moses was commissioned by God at the burning bush, Exodus 4, God gave him his mandate. You remember how he complained about how he wasn't eloquent and that he never was and he wasn't going to be eloquent even after God called him. If something magical would happen just because God called him. But you remember how God responded to him? Chapter 4, verse 11, God says to Moses, who, who has made your mouth, Moses? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord, Yahweh? I've done these things. Do you see? We all know Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 can be sung by this blind man in John chapter 9 as confidently as it can be sung by every man. I praise you, O God, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The blind man was created blind. He was created blind in order that God might declare his glory in the church. That the works of God might be displayed throughout the generations. That his name might be made great, glorified in the sight of all. And we see in Chapters that proceed how God will receive the glory. Now you might be sitting here this morning 
And you might be saying, Ari, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that God created this blind man with his infirmities so that God might be glorified through him. That's right. Exactly right. So you mean that God pursues his own glory through my weakness, my suffering, my brokenness, my difficulty? Exactly. He's using me to make his name great? Yes. Yes. I'm not sure I like that. That's a high price to pay to be a vessel for God. Now understand the reluctance. Who wants to go through trial and difficulty and endure such infirmities? Yes, it's true. God uses us as vessels in all our helplessness, our need, our weakness, so that his name might be exalted and made great in and through us to the world. If that's too much for you, the evangelist John wants you to bring you back to the narrative. It's the compassion of our Lord Jesus who said this in the hearing of this blind man. Look at verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with blood and said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, dear loved ones, do you know what's behind this difficult teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's the cross. Our Lord Jesus knew the cost of being a vessel for God's glory. He too had questions. And he had anguish about being a vessel for God's glory. A name or an activity that would make the name of God great. Remember his words in Luke's gospel. Those most astonishing, profound words, Luke 12, 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And And then during the dark night of his soul, on the Mount of Olives, when he was in the midst, in the depth of agony, and how his soul prayed with earnestness as his perspiration became drops of blood. Father, 
if you're willing. If there's any way, any way possible to remove the cup from me, let it happen. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And how later in John's gospel, we hear the cries of his soul. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But, Jesus goes on to say, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your And how will the Father glorify his name in his Son, Jesus Christ? It will be in the greatest weakness, in the most severe trial, when you see him on the cross, under the curse of God, bearing the wrath of God, and you say, Who sent? This man? Or someone else. Oh, it's not this man. He perfectly loved his father. Not once disobedient to his father. It was his delight to obey his father in every way. To to relish in the glory of his father's love and Obedience to him. He submitted his life to the Father. He was sinless. He was pure, undefiled. No, it wasn't the man on the cross. It was you. It was me. We sinned. And there he hung for the glory of his God. That's why he's there. So that the works of God might be displayed in him and through him. He knew the cost of being a chosen vessel, Isaiah 51, to display God's glory. And he said, your will be done. Use me. And if you can bear it, this is the life he calls you to as well. And so Christ's compassionate look at the blind man his most profound answer to his disciples, and now lastly, his call to share his life. Do you see what Jesus is saying in verse 4? He says, we, we must work the works of him who sent me. And this is Jesus' way of 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 associating his disciples with him in his work. It's, 
It's bringing them into the great mission of God for the church. And do you see the urgency? Jesus says to them, it is, it is, let's do this. He says, while it's day, night is coming when no one can work. In other words, let's use the time, the resources, the lives that God has given us now. Let us use the few short years that God has given us or will allow us yet on this earth so that we might be those vessels that display the works of God for God's glory. Yes, the we, all of God's people, you and me, all people, our Lord understands the cost. He understands the cost very well. And he says to us, it'll be for your good. That's how he encourages us. It'll be for your good. Because God, the God who brings glory to himself through his people, he is committed to your good. It's amazing. Look again at the blind man. His very need evoked Christ's compassion. That's the Lord's way of showing us that we never lose out in serving the Lord. Never. Jesus anointed the man's eyes with mud, sent him to wash in the pool of Salome. And, verse 9, verse 10, others saw that his eyes were opened. For the first time. Every difficulty, every trial, every sickness, every cheer in your life, every calamity is always for your good. For those who are called according to God's purpose. Romans 8, 28. And perhaps this is why John, in John 21, verse 18, John writes this. Jesus said to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself. You used to walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then this is John's editorial comment. Understanding what Jesus says in chapter 9. This he said to show by what, by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. That's our Savior. That's what he calls for us. Follow him. You see, God is, has so inextricably bound his own glory with our good that whatever is for his glory is absolutely for our good. God is never in a quandary 
wondering, well, if I do them good, then what will that do to my glory? Or if I bring myself glory, what would happen to my people? Do I pursue my glory or do I pursue my people's good? Never. Never. There's never a dilemma for God. And you know what that means? For us, it ought never to be a dilemma for us. And because there's no dilemma for God, there's no dilemma for us. We should never ask, shall I give myself fully to be a vessel for God? Or shall I pursue my own good? Never. No, rather offering yourself as a vessel for God, willingly for honor, so that he might do whatever he will do to pursue his own good. It's for your own good and for his glory. He will get the praise. You will receive the blessing. That's how it works. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, this ought to be of great encouragement to us when we're enduring trials, distress, illness, calamities of life. It ought to bring us great encouragement. And as you grow in maturity, spiritual maturity, you will change the question from asking, Why, Lord? And you will more quickly pray, Lord, how in my current difficulty, my illness, my adversity, how can the works of God be displayed in my life? For your glory. How can you use me for your greatest glory? And when it's difficult, when it's sometimes exceedingly difficult, you don't know how to carry on. You look to the cross. For the cross is the greatest display of the glory of God that this world has ever seen. And it's also the greatest display of God's determination to bless his people. Amen. Amen. Lord, our God, we confess our weakness, our sinfulness to embrace such difficult truths in our own lives from day to day. We're thankful that you teach us 
And that by your Holy Spirit, you not only give us the greatest example in Christ Jesus, but you have given us his own blessed spirit so that we might know the thoughts of God, that we might know the mind of God, and that we might be able to use our lives for your glory. Oh God, that is our single desire to bring you glory. That is our heart's great cry. Lord, use us to bring you glory, to make your name great in all the earth, to lift up the name of Christ in my family, in my neighborhood, in my community, in my office, in my goings abouts. Oh God, we want to bring you glory. And so we pray, use us. Make us willing vessels for your glory. And Father, give us all the grace that you have promised so that we might pray these things with a believing heart and then to know the sweetness of the assurance of what Christ has done on the cross for us so that we now might be those who are loved in him. We who are the apple of your eye, the ones in whom you delight to bless. And so we praise you, O God. We glory in your name. There is no God like you in all the earth. And we ask then that you would use us even this week and all the vicissitudes of our lives to bring you glory. We pray this in the blessed name of our dear Savior. Amen. Amen. Congregation, let's